as we read from Mark chapter 2 this morning, verses 18 to 22. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Uh, Let's pray again before we look at this text. Lord, we pray that you will um, still our hearts this morning, um, realign our minds this morning, enable us um, to have ears to hear as your people. Grant today um, anyone here, anyone listening um, to this message who is not a regenerate believer that, that today would be the day by your power and your grace, that their eyes would be open, the veil would be lifted, and sanctify, Lord, um, this, your word, to the hearts of your people, and enable me to communicate it by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I said earlier, Um, There is a a determined effort on the part of um, evangelical Christians, and I use the term evangelical lightly in our day. Um, There is a determined effort to make Jesus um, acceptable within society, um, to make Jesus fit into um, our culture without offending anyone. Jesus is oftentimes, as I said last Lord's Day, presented as having a a kind of um, live and let live attitude, as though Jesus just accepts everyone without exception, as though Jesus never judges, and that he embraces everyone um, without demanding that they turn from their sin and believe that he's the only way to God. But as we study his life, he's anything but in step with culture. Anything but in step. Now, we're in the middle of a section of scripture that absolutely contradicts today's widespread view of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 of Mark define for us who Jesus, the Christ, Son of God is, and what he does through a series of head-on collisions with the religious establishment of his day. 
that illuminate the character, the character of Christ and the heart of God, which, of course, are one and the same. The character of Christ and the love of God the Father are one and the same. And, and so far, here in chapter 2, uh, we have witnessed this, this mounting hostility um, from the scribes and Pharisees against the Lord Jesus. First, um, it was over the issue of, of healing a paralytic concerning Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Remember, they're thinking in their mind, who does he think he is? Forgiving sins. And that's a good question for anyone who may wonder, who does he think he is? (laughs) God in the flesh. That's who he knows he is. Secondly, was his association with with tax collectors and, and sinners as a result of of Levi's conversion. Remember Levi, a converted tax collector, um, threw a a banquet um, for Jesus. He hosted it in his his own home. And remember, the the, the Pharisees viewed tax collectors as, as traitors, and as such, they were deemed unclean. You would not want to come into contact with a tax collector anymore than you want to come into contact with a leper. So the Pharisees, in promoting their religion of of separation, of external righteousness, of of external outward holiness, the set-apart ones, they made sure that it was never made visible that they would ever even think of coming near such a one as a tax collector. Yet Jesus called such a man to himself, a social outcast, to, do, to be his disciple, to be his learner, and to also be a proclaimer of his gospel, for this Levi is otherwise known as Matthew, author of the gospel of Matthew. And today, uh, we look at a third controversy, a, a third confrontation, a, a third head-on collision, um, and that is uh, over the issue of fasting. Fasting means simply to go without food, to go without eating. And on the surface, that is indeed the case here in the text, but as Jesus' words will prove, the real issue at hand is much deeper than that. It's far more reaching than the mere practice of going without food. So in the account, we have a question raised about fasting, an answer given about fasting, and that's followed by a general principle regarding Jesus' kingdom, and we learn something about that kingdom by two parables that conclude the account here. So here then, what we're beginning to see in these early chapters, what is really This is what's at the heart of it all. Two opposing approaches in what it looks like to relate to God. Two opposing opposing approaches uh, as to what it means to connect with God. Two radically different methods of getting right with God and being right with God. That's what we see. Now, having been made in Mago Dei, that is all human beings are made in the image of God, we were made for relationship with God. 
We were made, we were created for a relationship with God, so our lives only make sense in relationship to God. That is the one true God through faith and trust in his son, Jesus, who is the Christ, the one and only son of God. He is the God-man. That is the key to understanding human existence. You want to know what life is all about? That's what it's all about. You realize that, most of you. The majority of the world does not realize that. Augustine is famous for saying this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now, most people in the world believe that in order to relate to God, if they admit he exists at all, you relate to him by what you do. You relate to him by doing. You connect with him by doing good stuff, good deeds. And most religions are, are based on that basic principle, although it, may, it takes many different forms. Doing good. But underneath them all, is the basic conviction that you relate to God by doing certain things, doing certain respectable things, so as to ensure that you're right with God. That's the basis of all world religions. And even if you aren't um, overtly religious, there is a certain internal conviction because you're made in Mago Dei, you're made in the image of God, there's a certain inward conviction that, that presses you, you towards that. Now, in our own country, a, a common creed has emerged in recent years among a number of Americans who actually call themselves Christian. And that is that they, they, they confess this creed, which, which I'll outline in a moment, and then they take Jesus and they try to press him into it. They try to press him into this mold. And it really consists of a loosely formed system of beliefs dubbed as moralistic, therapeutic deism. And that's according to the research of, of Christian Smith, uh, a sociologist from the University of Notre Dame. Now, the central tenets of this self-styled religion include the following. Number one, a moralistic outlook on man. That is a belief that, that man is essentially good, man is basically good, and, and being good, doing your best to be good, gets you to heaven. That's number one. Number two is a pluralistic, pragmatic perspective. That is, whatever religion works for you, so long as you're sincere, you'll get to heaven. After all, all roads lead to God. And then thirdly is a utilitarian view of God, and that is that, that God is not absolutely sovereign in and above all, but exists to secure our psychological happiness. In short, Smith writes, and I quote, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise and professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process, end quote. So, 
It's believed that if I can relate to him better, but by doing good things, I can earn his greater favor and ultimately go to heaven when I die. This is another false system that can only thrive in the rocky soil of biblical illiteracy. Because this has nothing to do with the Bible. Very popular view in our day. It's just another self-made God of a growing number of people who actually call themselves Christian. That's what I was referring to earlier about how we think. Now, as regards to relating to God or trying to be right with God, for some, it is this ambiguous sense that, you know, I probably ought to. For for others, it's more more of a concerted effort. You know, I'll do philanthropic good. I'll do this, that, and the other so I can feel good about myself and, uh, you know, hopes that, that God will accept me. Yet for others, it takes the form of a highly, highly formalized system of rituals and beliefs called Religion. Religion. And many, many people find some type of refuge in some form of religion. And that is so that they can justify themselves before God in their own minds as one who is good and devout and pious by my activities. The things I do and the things that, after all, what? I don't do by what I do and what I don't do. See, religious people tend not to think that they need divine help, but by way of their own moral achievements that they're good enough and they have very little room, if any, for the radical deliverance that Jesus alone provides. Okay, are you with me? And Jesus says actually back in verse 17 that he actually has little room for them. How do we know that? Because he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, I did not come to fraternize with others like me because there are no others like me. There isn't a group of righteous and sinners. The point is that Jesus made last Lord's Day, there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteous group think they're righteous by what they do and don't do. I've come to call sinners who are convinced they know they're sinners and they need to be delivered. Calm down. With Jesus, that is, with true Christianity, beloved, it is ever so different from all other religions, period. The gospel, true Christianity, is not only different from them, but is diametrically diametrically opposed to them. You can't slap Jesus on your own man-made belief. If you're a Christian, okay, you're here this morning, and you're a Christian, you are saved on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for you alone. He lived the righteous, perfect righteous life God requires in your place, and then he died bearing God's wrath on the cross, God's wrath against sin and the sinner, 
in your place. So he lived the life God requires in your place. He, he bore God's wrath in your place on the cross, raising from the dead, validating who he was and what he did, and ascended to heaven in rules and reigns now and forevermore. And you stand righteous in Christ by what he did alone. You didn't add anything to it. You can't add anything to it. You can't work your way and say, well, I'll slap Jesus on this and, and all is good. It's faith and trust in Christ alone. So any motivation for you or for me to act in a way that is pleasing to God is due to the fact that we love God knowing we didn't love him first, but he what? He loved us first. And in response to that, we want to please him as he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's why we do what we do. It's for his glory in response to what he's done for us. You earn nothing. So who Jesus is and and what he has done dismantles the entire religious world system. Are you with me still? Now the text before us, through the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, clearly states that the gospel, the good news, cannot be mixed into any other system in any way. Jesus cannot be mixed into them, whether it's the religious form known as Roman Catholicism, whether it's the religious sect known as Mormonism, whether it's the religious sect known as Jehovah's Witnesses, liberal Christianity, and every other kind of Christian cult, he will not be pressed into or molded into them. He will not become a patch on any religious system. Any and all other religious forms, from Islam to Hinduism, there is no mixing, there is no matching, there is no mingling with the gospel, and that's particularly true of Judaism. But gee, some Christians say, those are God's people. Newsflash. No, they're not. The only people who are God's people are those who are in his son. What does the scripture say? Listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one who are what? In Christ. If you're in Christ, you're one and you're God's children. If you're in the religion of Judaism, you're outside of being in Christ. So Judaism is is incompatible with the biblical gospel. That is both the Judaism of Jesus' day and the Judaism of our day. Is that clear? That's the Bible. So here then, you ready to get to the text? That was the introduction. Here now on the heels of that feast in honor of Jesus, thrown by Levi, the tax collector, comes this text in which Jesus defines exactly how incompatible his message is with the Judaism as propagated by the Pharisees of his day. Pharisees. A little bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees um, emerged... Um, regularly in the ministry of Jesus, as the leading opponents of our Lord. 
see this time and time again. They were a powerful group, a very highly educated and influential community leaders within the nation of Israel. And what they did is they exercised their influence over the people and all the affairs of the people, that is, of their lives, by their corrupted interpretation of the Old Testament. Pharisees. Now, the exact origin of the Pharisees is not known, but we do know that they arose around the time of the Maccabeans, the Maccabean period, 168 B.C., Um, So by Jesus' time, they had been in existence for for 200 years, two centuries almost. So according to Josephus, a first century historian, he said at the time of Christ, there were about 6,000 of them, 6,000 Pharisees. So, and they, they, they insisted on what God did not insist upon. So it was kind of a form of outdoing God, if you will. They led this. Many, many man-made traditions that they invented. So what they did is they, they, they attempted to, to set a kind of hedge of protection around the people so as to manipulate them and, and keep them, quote-unquote, you know, on track. Okay? This, is, this is the sect known as the Pharisees. And they would add to, and, and oftentimes go beyond God's law, and they viewed themselves as guardians of God's law. Guardians of the law. And they were quick to point out anyone who deviated from what they taught as per their traditions. Okay? So that's the scene. I mean, that's the the Pharisees. Okay, and then comes along Jesus. And they see something in him that threatens their authority. They become envious of Jesus, for he taught like no one ever taught, with authority. And Jesus began to call into question uh, the very things that the Pharisees taught. So they're very offended. And he, he, he began to do things, Jesus that is, that were way out of line with what the Pharisees said could be done and should not and ought not be done. Just violating it one after another. Why? Because it was the traditions of men. It wasn't the law of God. It was the traditions of men. And then in addition to all that is what Jesus said about himself, and that is claiming to have the very authority of God in himself. This was utterly appalling to them. Absolutely offensive. So this, this highly developed elaborate form of religion forged, okay, forged by them to, to tell the people how to relate to God was being threatened day in and day out. And, and Jesus claiming all along the way to be the only way to God. For I and the Father, he said, are what? One. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So claiming to be the Son of God, they had picked up stones on a number of occasions to stone him because... Stoning was the consequence of blasphemy, and Jesus, claiming to be the Son of God, was claiming to stand on equal ground with God. So here then, we see the religious approach to God by man here, trying to relate to God by doing 
And we see Jesus now who brings something completely different in himself. So here's this clash. This is the first of three clashes. And we'll see this week and next week. Um, Three episodes that are all linked together. And, And in them, what Jesus is doing, beloved, is he's exposing the Pharisees' very unique ability to take the blessings of God and turn them into burdens. Unique ability to take the blessings of God and turn them into burdens. Verse 18. Okay, look at your Bible. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, John's disciples here are disciples of John the Baptist. And John, he's in prison at this time, so perhaps... Perhaps we don't know for sure. Perhaps John's disciples were, were fasting out of the grief um, due to the fact that John was in prison. Or perhaps they became fasters in response to John's message of repentance. Or they could be fasting because of the traditions of the Pharisees. We don't know, but John's group is fasting and As a side note, not every one of the followers of John the Baptist became a follower of Jesus. Now, you would think that would be the case because John, after all, in his ministry, was certain that everyone know he, John, must decrease and Jesus, the Messiah, must increase. But when you read Acts 19, 20 years after the fact, guess what we find? A group of John's disciples who do not know yet about Jesus Acts 19, 20 years down the road. Okay, so, so here's John's group, his disciples, they're fasting. We don't know exactly why. And, and here's the Pharisees who were likely fasting according to their man-made tradition, their habit of fasting twice a week. The Pharisees, we know from history, fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So here then, the, the crowds of the religious leaders seeing Jesus that is, his disciples not fasting, says, look, look, Jesus, these two groups are fasting, John's disciples and the Pharisees, and your disciples, they're partying. How do we know that? Because they just came out of Levi's party. They were feasting, not fasting. They recognized this. Now, the law, the Old Testament, we read throughout, had one mandatory fast for the nation of Israel, and that was an annual fast on the Day of of Atonement. Now, we read of of many other fastings, and that was usually, and they were all good, most of them were good, but it was usually out of either grief over a lost loved one, grief over one's sin, so it was a, 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 a form of penance, Repentance, fasting, um, national fast, and that type of thing. But, but God prescribed only one for the nation of Israel. But by this time, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, the influence of fasting was um, not only initiated by, but also broadcast about by the Pharisees. Okay, so they initiated all these fasts. Now add to that the manner in which they fasted. Okay, the manner in which they fasted, they, they went out of their way to look glum. They would dishevel their faces. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, when he confronted it, they would disfigure their faces. They would actually put white uh, chalk substance or powder-like on their face. They would put ashes on their head. They'd make sure they looked all disheveled. They refused to bathe. And they wanted to appear as bereft and as blue as possible. They wanted to look somber, dedicated, super spiritual, miserable. (laughs) See, they labored under the false assumption that unfortunately many Christians labor under uh, under today. And that is, in order to be religious, in order to be spiritual, it's a very joyless affair. You have to suffer for Jesus. So the, the, the assumption is that People cannot be spiritual unless they're miserable. Very sad. In order to be a real, true, spiritual Christian, I have to give up doing stuff I like, and I have to start doing stuff I dislike. You ever heard that? People think you're Christians. Well, you're a Christian. You can't do this, that, and the other, right? Well, who said that? You invent things like you can't drink coffee, can't partake of caffeine, just nonsense. Can't listen to rock and roll, all this stuff. (laughs) I read this. uh, Here's a funny story. I I read this story this week. This is from a pastor. Kent Hughes wrote this. He he speaks of a young believer who was full of zeal, was in his congregation. And usually, young people full of zeal do not yet have the ability to keep things in proper perspective. Even older Christians who get caught up in some doctrine, whatever this doctrine is, they can't keep things into perspective. And uh, he he said that this guy concluded, this young man concluded that uh, never once in Scripture does it say that Jesus smiled or laughed, therefore good Christians don't smile. Never mind the arguments, this is Hughes, these are Hughes' words, never mind that arguments from silence are patently dangerous, never mind the smiling wit of Jesus, I can still see him, he says, with his wife and a few like-minded friends through church, sitting together, you know, righteous but somber, holy but, but unsmiling, you know, that brow-beaten puppy dog look. You ever see that? Good morning. It's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. Yes, we all grief at certain times, but to put on this show, it's absurd. Others might take on a kind of martyr complex. So there's this, they have this soapbox. They stand on the soapbox, and, and, and they have this one biased view of something, and it's, 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 there's some error in it. But the soapbox soon becomes their, their trophy base, and they're their trophy. They're the trophy. Here I am for you, Lord. And, you know, everyone, they don't like me, and they're all attacking me um, because they say what I say is erroneous. So they, be, they take on a martyr complex. So they have to look downtrodden. It's sad. Spiritual. In order to magnify that spirit, the Pharisees instituted several additional fasts to the one that God prescribed. Now, the Pharisees were legalists. Okay, meaning, okay, let's, let's define legalism. Legalism, biblical legalism, is to believe that you can position yourself in a right standing with God as a result of what you do 
and do not do. That, that's legalism. That, that's what the Pharisees believed. And let me add this. A true pursuit of holiness for a Christian is not legalism. Okay? And, and again, uh, the words of, of John Frame, from which I read this week, uh, recipients of gospel grace motivates obedience, so there's nothing wrong or legalistic about detailed or even strenuous obedience in the life of the believer. So, unless you think you can be saved or you can save yourself by way of your obedience, by what you do or don't do, obeying God is not legalism. Are we clear on that? On the right? Middle? Left. Good. So, knowing what legalism is, nothing infuriates a legalist more than people who don't obey the rules. The Pharisees had established all these rules as a form of self-righteousness, and they worked hard to maintain it by what they did and did not do. And as a result, they looked down upon everyone else who did not do what they did or did not do. And then Jesus comes along, and of course, he observes these things, and then he tells a story. So let's look at one he told in Luke. You can turn your Bibles to Luke 18. One book over, Luke 18. The heading, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 9. Jesus, that's the he, he he also told this parable to some who, notice, notice, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Get that, twice a week? I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Notice verse 11, praying really to himself. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. Confident, notice, in what he doesn't do. He's not an extortioner and whatever other list he has there. And then verse 12, also praying to himself, confident in what he does do. What he doesn't do and what he does do. I'm a tither, a double faster. (laughs) Twice a week. What, confess your sins? Confess my sins of what? Look at what I do and look at what I don't do. What am I going to confess? See the Spirit? Back to the fasting thing. They asked Jesus, why, why, are they, why are they all fasting? Your disciples aren't fasting. Notice Jesus counters their question with a question, and he draws attention away from what his disciples weren't doing to the true issue. And that is that there's a new situation created by the coming of Messiah. Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
So he refers to a wedding, and in ancient Israel, weddings lasted a week. Okay? Seven days of feasting. Seven days of celebration. So a wedding, even in our day, is a very what? A joyous feasting type of celebration. Who would think about fasting at a wedding? Let's think about it our day, a wedding reception. Would you fast at a wedding reception? Now imagine one of these self-righteous type of people. Imagine you, you walk in, okay, you're, you're a professing Christian, you walk in to, to a wedding reception, okay, and the hors d'oeuvres people are coming around. Would you like one, sir or ma'am? No. And then, and of course, only in a whisper, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. But I will have another glass of water. Would that be incredibly unusual? Absolutely. It it would also be utterly inappropriate behavior. Okay? Look, if you're fasting, don't go. Don't go and then say, well, I'm fasting. You should be feasting. That's the point. Now, at, at this time in history, this is important, at this time in history, in a wedding, the eyes were not on the bride. Sorry, ladies. They were on the bridegroom. They were on the bridegroom, not the bride, because he was the center of attention. When he arrived, he served as the official host of the wedding what? Feast. Do we get the picture? See it being drawn? Jesus says it would be inappropriate for the guests of the wedding feast to fast. My disciples who are with me don't fast because the bridegroom's with them. See this? Jesus is saying, look, there's something about me being here now at this time that calls for feasting, not fasting. So the religious system, they hated this. The Pharisees hated this. The scribes hated this. They constantly grumbled because Jesus was found feasting with sinners. Look again at Luke chapter 15 this time. Notice, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This is verse 1, chapter 15. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. You just hear my... Look at him over there. Saying... This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So then Jesus responds again and he tells him a parable. If a man has a hundred sheep, he loses one. Does he not go out and retrieve the one? Brings him back on his shoulders. What? Rejoicing. Pearl of great price, the prodigal son. And he addresses the Pharisees. They're really the son who is at home. Look, we've done all this stuff. We've always been here. If there should be a feast for anyone, it should be for me. They don't get it. Jesus is saying, there is something special about me. There's something exceptional about me being here. And he speaks of himself here as the what? We alluded to this early in the service. The bridegroom. Okay, so, so, in the Old Testament, God, G-O-D, Yahweh, the one true and only God, speaks of himself as the what? Bridegroom. Look at Ezekiel 16, verse 8. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. That's the picture of marriage. 
covenant of marriage, okay? Hosea 2.19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in, a right, in, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know I am the Lord. A betrothal, an engagement unto marriage, covenant. Isaiah 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God. Rejoice over you. And of course, I opened the service with Isaiah 54, which says basically the same thing. The bridegroom. You see, that's how God in the Old Testament pictured himself with his people. And Jesus here now says, I'm the bridegroom. Which says what? What's that statement saying? I'm God come in the flesh to draw you into the relationship with God in myself. Beautiful. In myself. Oh, the danger. Oh, the danger of missing the Christ for the sake of ceremony. Amen? Oh, the danger of of giving oneself to mere ritual and miss the living true relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. Very dangerous. And that is why empty rituals, empty liturgies, rituals are good, liturgies are good, ceremonies are good, but if they're merely rituals and merely liturgical, just the stuff we do and the stuff we say, it always is the enemy of true spirituality, always the enemy of true godliness. Amen? Verse 20. The days will come, says Jesus, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So here, notice, a a cloud now briefly passes through the text, doesn't it? Notice, the implication is to be taken away by force. The implication is to be taken away violently. This is the first hint in Mark's gospel of the looming cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus impending death. When I'm taken away, then they'll fast. In their grief, then they'll fast. It's not going to be a Monday, Thursday exhibition. It's not going to be some show. They're going to be truly grieved, and then it will be a time of sorrow, which leads to fasting. See, and today, a, a, a grief in a you know, a friend of mine, Man, a number of years ago now, about 2001 or 2002, their daughter, 21 years old at the time, came down with terminal cancer. The mother, a friend of mine, wasn't eating for days. And I remember we'd go to the hospital, and some people would come and visit and say, look, you need to eat, you need to eat. No, she doesn't need to eat because the grief produced in her this type of sorrow which drove her to fast in beseeching the Lord on behalf of her daughter at that time. So it becomes a very natural or even supernatural thing, really. He said, they're going to grieve. Then they'll fast. But now it's a time for feasting, he says. Time for feasting. See, the long-awaited Redeemer, Jesus Christ, broke into history. Nothing would be the same again. The bridegroom has arrived. And when he does die, remember what the disciples will be doing? 
they'll lock themselves in a room gripped by fear. And who shows up? But he comes through the wall. The risen Savior. And what does he do? He eats with them. He eats with them. Fasting, over. Grieving, over. He will raise from the dead. So Jesus is saying, look, in my coming, there's something new, there's something different in how you relate to God. Okay? All right? Verse 21. Notice. Now he gets into some deep theological truth. So here's two little parables that define something about his kingdom. He addresses the issue of fasting, and then he's going on now, and and he's going to provide two little parables that define something about himself as the king of his kingdom. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, That is, if you take a piece of unshrunk cloth, you cut it into the shape of a patch, you put it on a new garment, okay, you put it on a garment, it's a new material. When it's washed, it will pull away and it will cause another tear, right? It's unshrunk on something that's already shrunk. When I was a kid, my brother and I would wear holes in our jeans, just like that, in the knees. So mom would ship them uptown to grandma, and grandma used to sew patches. She knew how to do it. You take shrunken cloth and you put it on these worn-out, tattered jeans, and they lasted. But then my mom discovered um, iron-on patches. I mean, Grandma even used to sew our socks. Get holes in our socks, she'd sew them. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. Folks didn't have a lot of money then. And uh, she, Mom would iron these on, but those were brittle patches, and they just they didn't bend with, with the denim. So pretty soon there's a new rip. Where? Just above the patch. Because the patch was too strong for the old, so it caused a tear. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. And verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So back then they would kill a goat. They would strip its hide, and they would do their best to strip it as one whole piece. They would tan it, and they would sew the hide together, and the part where the neck was would serve as a spout, and they'd put a little cork in there, and they would pour new wine into it. They would take, they would take that wine skin and pour it into another wine skin, and the dregs would settle at the bottom, and they would comp- finish the process, pouring it one into another until you had pure, fresh wine, fermented wine. So these wine skins... Uh, as the wine fermented, it would stretch as the wine expanded. Jesus said if you take an old brittle wine skin and pour wine in it, new wine into it, when it ferments, it'll blow the thing up and you'll lose the wine skin and the wine. The old garment, the old wine skin that Jesus is talking about, okay, it's not the Old Testament, Okay? It's not God's law. God's holy law is a blessing, okay? Can God's law save? No, it serves as a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ, and he's standing right here. So God's law today serves as guardrails of protection. When he called Israel out, he saved them first, delivered them first, then he gave them the law. And today, 
as led by the Holy Spirit, as we are recipients of grace, we're led by the Holy Spirit, and we know under the new covenant, his yoke is easy, his burden is what? Light. Light. So Jesus here, here, is referring to the religion of Pharisaical Judaism and the fact that the pieces of the gospel cannot be stitched into it. It'll blow up. Are you with me? Their entire system, Jesus is saying, look, this entire system that you've constructed is completely incompatible with who I am and who the Old Testament scriptures declare that I am. All this stuff you created, it's going to blow up. You can't stitch me into it. I can't be patched into it. I can't be poured into your old wineskin because it's going to blow up. We see this? What I bring, Jesus is saying, is incompatible with your distortion of the Old Testament. I am the fulfillment of the law and the... Hello? Prophets, thank you. I, I do that because you're too well-schooled not to do that if I ask you to do that. Amen? Thank you. Be, be sure we know this, New Covenant believers. The New Testament gospel, I should say the gospel, is not a New Testament thing. Okay? The gospel is not a New Testament thing. The gospel is God's unfolding plan from the fall of Adam on throughout the Old Testament, unfolding itself and manifesting itself in the person and work of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. That's why Mark 1 begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel incarnate, okay? The gospel incarnate. Jesus did not come to put a patch on their perversion of the Old Testament. He came with a message to replace it all together. That's what we see. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. See, you cannot pour the Christian gospel into the old, cracked wineskin of Judaism. That's what he's saying here. It'll blow it apart. If you try to make me fit into your forms, he's saying... It's not going to work. It pulls away. It's like a patch. Unshrunken patch pulls away. So both parables here, beloved, are about the relation of Jesus or true Christianity to apostate, traditionalized, man-made Judaism. Listen to James Edwards, one of the commentators I've been reading. Quote, Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. He is not an attachment, addition, or appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures, even Judaism, Torah, and the synagogue. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives, end quote. Well put. So, Christ, beloved, Christians and Jews today are not closely knit together as some Christians think we are. 
Some Christians think we stand on common ground. There is no common ground. For some strange reasons, a lot of Christians think that. They believe that. Let me say this. Any form of Judaism without Jesus, the Christ, Messiah, Son of God, is a false religion. Judaism then and Judaism now. It's a damning religion. It's no better than Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or even atheism. We, we have this clear? This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not a patch or on worn-out, man-made religious systems. Whether it's Judaism of that day or Judaism of this day. Jesus is not a patch known as good teacher. Jesus is not a patch known as a great prophet slapped on some man-made religion. That's nonsense, and any time of thinking like that needs to be repented of. Amen? He is not a patch on top of your self-effort in relating to God or trying to be accepted by him. Well, I say Jesus is like this. Well, that's not what the scripture says. That's making him a patch. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Quote, If there's one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness that we must insert, then we're lost. End quote. And that is, you don't understand the gospel. You see, friends, and let me say this delicately, but, but, but certainly, Roman Catholicism doesn't get that. It's not Jesus plus my stuff I do. It's not Jesus plus my works that gets me into heaven. The celestial garment of righteousness is the imputed righteousness and the pure white robes of Jesus Christ placed on you according to his grace by faith alone. That's it. That's how you get in. Jesus will but not be stitched into Mormonism. It's another Jesus. Jesus will not be stitched into Jehovah's Witnesses. It's another Jesus. Jesus won't be stitched into Islam. Is is a good prophet. Jesus won't be stitched into Judaism. Jesus won't be stitched into the cultic form of the Church of Christ, who says in our day that in order to be saved, you have to believe and you have to be baptized, which becomes a work rather than a response to being saved. He won't be stitched into it. He won't be poured into old brittle wineskins of man-made religion who claim to be Christianity. Amen? Now, I'm almost done. For those in the 21st century who aren't part of any religious sect like those, Jesus will not allow himself to be married into modern philosophies, whether it's humanism, postmodernism, environmentalism, you know, Jesus the tree hugger. He will not be married into feminism. He will not be married into LG, whatever it is, LBGTism, or any otherism. Period. He will not be poured into the shriveled wineskins of moralistic, therapeutic deism that I opened with. Period. This is where the thinking goes wrong. And he becomes this patch. See, for anyone to read the Bible, honestly, the real biblical Jesus, okay, let me say this. 
the real biblical Jesus who dismantles all of that type of thinking, that same Jesus, the one true Jesus, will still arouse to this day the same rage, the same anger, and the same antagonism that he experienced in the first century because he is far too narrow-minded to be used as a patch on some man-made system. Broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to what? Destruction. Straight is the way, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And how many people are on that, said Jesus? Very few. Because they want to use them as a patched patch. Jesus says, look, I will not be managed, I will not be manipulated, I will not be marketed, I will not be sold as a patch on your worn-out, recycled ideas. There's nothing new under the sun. I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. And he says this, I will be accepted as who I am, not who you make me to be. Just another religious entity. This is serious stuff. So let me read this little story and I'll be done. Tim Keller in his uh, commentary, someone gave me a copy of it and been enjoying it. You're not here today, but thank you anyway. (laughs) Tim Keller um, um, repeats a story told by Dick Lucas, who was a pastor of St. Helen's Bishopgate in central London. And Lucas imagines a conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in ancient Rome, and that is to whom Mark was addressing with his gospel. Ah, says the neighbor, I hear you're religious. Great! Religion's a good thing. Where's your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where where do your priests do their work and perform their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. Mark, Mark, Mark stole my thunder, being a biblically minded man. Jesus is our priest. No priests? Where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor? And the answer, of course, is no kind of religion at all. Amen? You see, religion has no room at all for this Christ. Religion has no room at all for a Jesus like that. The question is, do you? Here this morning, do you? Has your philosophy of human tradition, basic principles of the world, caused you to be carried away captive in your thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done? Let me say this, repent. Change your thinking. And believe in the gospel. See, true love, the love of God in Christ, triumphs over religion and it rescues sinners from this deadly, wrong approach. Any attempt to stitch Jesus into man-made philosophy and steal the glory that's due to God alone. That's what you're doing. If you're doing that. Here's the other side. For believers... Christians who believe the true gospel and the true Christ, for those who live on this side of the resurrection, this teaching serves much more than being an amazing metaphor. This, for us, is reality. 
okay? We're not just guests of the bridegroom. Who are we? His bride. We are the bride of Christ. So let us feast and rejoice. Amen? Feast and rejoice. Amen. May God bless his word to the hearts of his people.